So today we're going to be talking about a fork in the road. Galatians chapter 3, verses 9 to 14. You can go ahead and turn there. And somebody came up to me, I think it was Steve, before service. He's like, oh, that reminds me of a famous Yogi Berra quote. Yogi Berra, anybody know who Yogi Berra is? I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I've heard of him. Obviously, he was a player, big player. And then a, a coach, correct? Catcher for the Yankees. I believe he coached for the Mets as well. Coached maybe for the Yankees. I think went to Houston for a little while. Frank, am I roughly? Okay, good. I haven't messed it up too much so far. But, so Yogi Berra, famous baseball player. But one of the things he is, I don't want to say more famous for, but maybe equally famous for, it is sayings. Things that he said. Uh, I, I believe the correct term is, I'm going to get this wrong, malappropriisms. Do we have any grammar people? Is that correct? So it's a saying where you change a word and it makes it sound good, but it's really nonsense. Okay? Kind of like most of my preaching. But (laughs) I can say that. If you say that, it's mean. I can say that. My wife can tell me that later, but... There's also a a lot of quotes attributed to him that we're not really sure if he really said it. In fact, one of his quotes that I really like kind of hints at that. He said, I really didn't say all the things I said. (laughs) That's classic Yogi Berra right there. Because if you really, on the surface, you're like, oh, that's really deep. And then if you think about it, you go, wait, that makes no sense whatsoever. But one of his famous quotes, and it appears he did say this one, is when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, in case you're not familiar, fork in the road means like a Y intersection. You come up to it, there's two different ways to go. Now, usually, if you're giving directions, you know, it kind of matters if you go left or right. But he's just going, yeah, whatever. Take either one. Now, I researched this. He was giving instructions to his house to another player by the name of Joe, and help me on this, Garagiola. Yeah, I actually tried to look up the pronunciation on that to get it right, and there were several different ones, so there you go. I don't know who Joe was. Was he another player for the Yankees? I don't know baseball. Sorry. So he was giving directions to his house. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Barra lived at, like, the other end of a circle, so the road led up to the circle, and literally you could go left or right. Either way would lead to his house. So it was actually really good instructions when you come to the fork in the road. Take it. It doesn't matter which way you go. All roads lead to Yogi Berra's house, evidently. (laughs) I think it caught on, A, because he said it, uh, and, and B, because it's funny, but also because I think we like the idea of it doesn't really matter which way you go. We all face these choices in life, and we, we want to think that all choices, all answers, all decisions are kind of equal. Just, just pick a path. It doesn't matter which path. Just take the path. And today we're going to look at a fork in Scripture, two ways that are clearly being presented to us. And what we're going to see is that it is vitally important which one of these we choose, that they do not lead to the same place. Now, We need to bring uh, ourselves up to speed here and remember what was going on in the churches in this region of Galatia. So Galatians is not written to one church. It's not written to one city. It's a region with multiple churches. Paul had planted most of these churches, maybe all of them. And these false teachers had come in and they were teaching 
that not only did you have to receive and accept Jesus as your Savior to be saved, to be made righteous, which means acceptable to God, but these false teachers were also teaching, yes, you have to receive Jesus, but also you have to do this list of good deeds. And the more good deeds you could do, the more acceptable to God you were. And Paul is writing to the churches to say, no, this is wrong. It distorts and destroy, destroys the gospel. Now, one problem, a practical problem this caused in the church, and this is kind of where it began to crop up, was if particularly the Jewish believers were taught that they still had to follow the Old Testament law, it meant that they couldn't have fellowship with the non-Jewish or the Gentile believers. They couldn't go to their house. They couldn't eat a meal with them because the Old Testament law forbade that. And so what was happening is this teaching was coming in and creating two groups in the church, kind of the more spiritual Jewish Christians and the lesser Gentile Christians. So this was going on on the surface. And there are some commentators today that say that's what Paul was talking about. That's what he's writing about. But Paul is talking about something so much more. Because he says, yes, that's what's going on on the surface, but it's a symptom of a deeper issue, a gospel issue. This teaching wasn't just changing who they could hang out with. It was changing how they believed they could be saved. And that's what Paul is picking up on. This teaching destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these two ways. We're going to look at Galatians verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And uh, hold on one second. I forgot my water. Just transitions, right? This has nothing to do with the renovations. Just the fact that I forgot. It does. Lid. That's yes. Yeah, we thought about just saying you could only have drinks in approved um, OCC mugs and they'd be on sale for like 50 bucks. We decided against that. (laughs) Decided that was a little too legalistic. Okay, two ways. What are the two ways? Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Now, we covered verse 9 last week, but I want to bring it in this week because it really sets this off. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So what are these two ways? There's a way of blessing, and then there's the way of a curse. A blessing and a curse. Verse 9 talks about being blessed along with Abraham. If you remember back in the Old Testament, God came to Abraham and he said, you and your offspring, your family, you will be my people. And I will have a special relationship with you. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will give you a land. I will give you offspring. Abraham was a very old, past childbearing age at this time. But God said, you and your people will be my blessed people. And through you, I will bless all people. The greatest blessing of all in scripture has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with possessions, has nothing even to do with health. The greatest blessing in scripture is the presence of God. God himself 
is the greatest blessing. So when we're asking to be blessed by God, we are asking to know who he is, to have his works manifest among us. That is the greatest blessing in scripture. So we have blessed along with Abraham. That's path one. Then we have path two. Verse 10 talks about being under a curse, under the judgment of God. We don't like to talk about this today. We want to leave that part out. Oh, pastor, talk about the blessing. I like that. That that helps me to feel very encouraged. We will never understand how great the blessing is if we cannot understand what this curse is and how dangerous it is. So we have these two ways, a way of blessing and a way of curse, being cursed. Which one do you want? Well, duh. I mean, it's not a hard choice, is it, really? I mean, don't we all want the way of blessing? Who's going to be like, yeah, sign me up for the curse. I want that one. But a better question is, what determines which path we're on? As we're looking at that fork of the road, the way of blessing and the way of curse, what determines which path we're on? How do we know? Typically, we think if we do bad things, we're on the way of the curse. If we sin, if we do the really bad sins, I mean, some sins we think maybe not that bad, but the really bad ones, as long as we're not those people, or as long as our good things outweigh our bad things, we're, we're on the way of being blessed. We're, we're basically good people. But what if, what if we're wrong about this? What if we're wrong about thinking what causes us to be on the path of blessing and the path of the curse? What if we think we're on the path of being blessed by God, but we're actually on the other path? Well, that's scary, isn't it? And I'll tell you as a pastor, this is one of my greatest fears in ministry. Greatest fears is that there will be people sitting in this congregation listening to me preach week after week after week that will think they're going to heaven, but they're not. That is one of my greatest fears. You falling asleep? Not really. That's, I'm, don't, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> Lynn Ensign's a, a former pastor. I'll pick on him. He told me that uh, you know the chairs are so comfortable he might fall asleep. I told him, well, it's only fair. People slept through his sermons. He could probably sleep through my Where are you, Lynn? Where, where's Lynn? There you are. You awake? Just, just not, you guys just look at him every once in a while. But think about the danger of that. And, and this is what was going on in these churches. These teachers were coming in and preaching, we know God's way. Yes, Jesus, but also you need to earn your righteousness. Be a good person and God will accept you. If you're not a good person, God won't accept you. And so they're following this teaching. I'm going to be a good person. going to be a good person. Thinking, because I'm doing this, I am following God. I am righteous. He's going to accept me. And Paul is coming along and saying, not only is that harmful, but it is a complete and utter lie. You think you're on the path of being accepted by God but you are actually on the path of being under the curse. They were teaching a false gospel. And so what Paul's going to do in this passage, as he does in so many other passages, and like we must always do, is go to not what we think should happen, not what makes sense to us, 
but go to the word of God. Paul has four Old Testament quotes in the passage, the short passage that we're looking at today. Because people were accusing him of teaching something new and he's saying, no, no, it's all there. It's always all been there. So let's look at verse 9. Sorry, verse 10. Yeah, yeah, verse 9. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Get there. Transitions. Okay. I get to use that for a couple more weeks at least. Verse 9 says that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10 says all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The word rely here is crucial. What is it we are trusting in for our salvation? What is it we are relying on? Paul's not saying it's bad to do good things. Okay, I want to clear that up. And at the end of Galatians, he's going to talk about if we are in Christ, if we're trusting him for our salvation, there are good, obedient things that should come out of that. But what are we trusting in? What is it that when we stand before God, we are going to think this makes me righteous and acceptable to God? Are we, re- are we relying on faith or on our good works? And what Paul is saying is that these works of the law, our own works, our own obedience, our efforts to make ourselves righteous, only put us under the curse. They cannot make us righteous at all. Obedience in the Christian life has its place. And later, in later chapters of Galatians, we'll talk about that. But it must be an obedience that comes because of faith, that is the offspring, the overflow of faith. It is not obedience that causes righteousness, but obedience that is because God has declared us to be righteous. If we rely on works, we are trusting in ourselves. And that is the danger that Paul is pointing out here. Now think about that. He's saying that these people who are trying to be good, trying to do the right thing, trying to live the way that God wants, these people think they are going to heaven. But Paul is saying that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they are actually going to hell. That is a sobering, sobering thought. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And as we walk through the rest of this passage today, that's my challenge to each one of us. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. What are we trusting in for our righteousness? There is a fork in the road. One way is our efforts to clean ourselves up and make us righteous. The other way is trusting in Jesus Christ. Which way are we going to take? And so we get to these quotes that Paul uses. The first one is in verse 10, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul's pointing out that the law is an all or nothing thing. You cannot say, well, I basically kept nine out of the Ten Commandments, or I've kind of kept half of the over 500 different commandments in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm pretty good. My good outweighs my bad. He says, look, the law itself says you have to keep all of it. Because remember what the law is about. The law was never meant to save. The law points out the absolute righteousness of God 
and, by contrast, the fact that we are sinners. It was never meant to bridge the gap. It cannot bridge the gap between the two. It can only point out the difference. The law says it's all or nothing. And so Paul is saying, if you want to rely on your own works to save you, you've got to be absolutely perfect. Never mess up, never sin, never fail to keep any of God's commandments. And all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament is the harsh truth. No one can do this. No one. It's impossible. The fact that we all sin is written all throughout the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is no way to keep the law. There is no righteousness to be found there. There is no salvation to be found in us cleaning ourselves up, fixing ourselves up, being a good person, and thinking that makes us acceptable before God. Which brings us to Paul's second point in verse 11. We must trust in God to make us righteous. We must trust in God to make us righteous. He quotes out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Look in verse 11 there. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, and here's the quote, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, in the, the passage here, it's talking about someone who is puffed up by their own thoughts of themselves says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. So he sets up that person, and then he gives the contrasting person. He says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's the second phrase that Paul is pointing to. This phrase was, I believe, extremely important to Paul because he quotes it again in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In fact, I think it was this phrase that after Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and all of his, his past history, all of his schooling, all of his life as a Pharisee was called into question because here's this guy that he thought was wicked and awful and God has raised him from the dead and suddenly the light goes on. Everything he said must be true. So how does salvation work? And I believe it was this passage, the righteous shall live by faith, that began to put the pieces together. I believe that because we have a later example of that very thing happening. I talked about this when we went through the Reformation series a couple years ago. The monk, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was struggling with his own righteousness. He was trying to make himself righteous. He was trying to follow the teachings of the Catholic Church that said, do these things and you will be righteous and acceptable to God. And he tried everything. He spent his life teaching, reading, praying, confessing, working as hard as he could to overcome his own sin. But he knew he failed over and over again. The Pope announced an indulgence, a declaration from the Pope that you could earn a bit of righteousness, that the Pope could declare some of your sins forgiven, some earned righteousness based on something you did. And this particular indulgence was that if the people would come to Rome and climb this set of stairs, 
that Christ, after he had been beaten, before going to the cross, this was supposedly the stairs that were at the house of Pilate, that at some point had been moved to Rome. All of that, to be honest with you, is extremely doubtful that they were the real steps. But the idea was that there were drops of Jesus' blood on these stairs. And so the idea was you would go to Rome and you would get on your knees and you would crawl on these hard stone stairs. And and each step you would say another prayer, earning your righteousness, suffering for Jesus, doing what you could do to make yourself righteous. And people's knees would get raw and bloody as they climbed up these stairs. And Luther, wanting to make himself righteous, began this climb. Each step, his knees were pounding, hurting, rubbed raw. Each step, he prayed another prayer. And at some point along his ascent of these steps, this passage came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. His son later wrote that Luther got up off the stairs, didn't make it to the top, and he left. And he went back home to Germany, and he continued to study, what does it mean that the righteous will live by faith? And it was from this idea, this scripture, that he began to teach, we are not saved by our works. And he began to see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are not saved by what we do. He began to see Paul as Paul actually wrote, we are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the Protestant Reformation began. And it is because of that that we sit here today. Luther truly understood what Paul was saying here. There are two ways. There is a righteousness that is based on a life of faith, trusting in the God who saves us, who makes us righteous. Or there is a curse because we're trying to earn it ourselves. So Paul's first point is that we will never be good enough. His second point is that we must trust God for our righteousness. Let's look at his third point in verse 12. He says, The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. His third point is that relying on the law or our own efforts to make ourselves righteous and relying on faith are completely opposite and contrary to each other. You cannot mix them together. The law is not based on faith. Paul here is talking about legalism. This idea that if I work hard enough, if I can clean myself up, God will accept me. If we rely on that for our righteousness, Paul says that we are under this curse. And here's the quote that he has, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. The person who does these things, speaking of the law, will live by them. In other words, trusting the law is about how you live every day, every choice, every action, every motivation. All of it has to be in line with the law. It's all about what you do. But the blessing of righteousness that Paul points out is about what we believe, what we trust in, what we have faith in. So let's put this all together. Here's the fork in the road. One way is the way of trying to make ourselves righteous. By doing all the good things that we can possibly do. Trying to avoid all the bad things we can possibly avoid. And Paul is saying very clearly, you cannot. Make yourself righteous this way. That way is not the same as the other way. 
the way of trying to make ourselves righteous only leads to being under the curse. Anyone, everyone who trusts in their own good works to make them righteous is actually under a curse. Guys, this is not Dave Day's teaching. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that shook Martin Luther to the foundations of everything he had been taught. And I pray it continues to do the same today. Let it sink in for a moment. And you'll see how great this warning to the Galatians was. And how great it is to us today. It is possible to think you are making yourself righteous when you are actually earning the curse of God. But there is another way. It's the way of faith. To trust that it is God who makes us righteous. But how does he do that? And that's where Paul turns in verses 13 and 14, where he talks about being redeemed by Christ. Christ, verse 13 here, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree, some translations have. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The Old Testament law can only lead us to one place. God is holy, we are not. It's the only place it can lead to, and it is an important place. People will say, well, we don't need the Old Testament law. We need that understanding. We need to know the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. But that's as far as it can take us. And here, Paul's not done quoting the Old Testament. He quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 23. And I want to quote two verses here, 22 and 23, just to give a little context. The law says this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree or a pole, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Why is Paul quoting that? Okay, Paul, don't leave the guy on the the post overnight because it's gross and icky. Got it. The point in the law was that There was a level of sin that was so awful that it demanded the person be put to death. And there was a level of that sin that was so awful that a public spectacle needed to be made of that person so that everybody that walked by would see that person's shame and the horror of their punishment and say, don't be like them. That is the worst of the worst. Don't be and don't do like that person has been and done. It was so bad and the curse on that person was so great that God in his mercy put a limit on it. He said, I don't want my land defiled by this. So don't leave that person on that pole overnight. Take them down. The shame cannot be endured longer than that. What Paul wants us to see very clearly here is that a person hung on a post or on a tree is so blatantly obvious under the worst possible curse of God. It is the worst shame, the worst punishment for the worst sinner. Now look, Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. How? That word redeemed comes from the slave market in the old times. It meant to purchase a slave, sometimes to purchase them to own them or to purchase them to set them free. But it was this idea of, I've paid your price, I've redeemed you. Christ has bought us back. And what has he bought us from? Paul says the curse of the law. We had earned the curse under the law because of our sins. But God has paid a price through Jesus Christ. How did Christ redeem us? How did he buy us back from the curse of the law? By becoming the curse himself. He hung on a tree, a pole, a specific pole we call a cross. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. Jesus, who is God, with all the righteousness of God, all the perfection of holiness and righteousness, He left heaven, was born among us, lived a perfect, sinless life, yet He chose to be cursed. The worst curse imaginable. He chose willingly to die on a tree, to be publicly held up in absolute agony and shame, that everyone who looked at him would say, that man is cursed. Why? Because Jesus took the law to its ultimate conclusion. The worst possible curse. He took it upon himself so that we don't have to. The shame of the cross was our shame. The guilt that Jesus was paying for on the cross was our guilt. The punishment that he took was our punishment. He died in our place. Now think about this, and I don't think we can understand because we wear cross jewelry, we we decorate things with crosses, and they're beautiful and they're wonderful, but in the Old Testament, the concept of being hung on a tree was something you didn't speak of, you didn't talk about. It was the worst shame imaginable. And yet, all over the New Testament, the apostles loved to talk about Jesus being hung on a tree, being put on a cross. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, Peter tells the Jewish leaders, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a, and our English translations use the word cross, but in, Greece, in Greek, it's not actually cross, it's tree. Very specifically, tree. Why? Because it was the equivalent to that Old Testament passage. Look at the shame. And yet Peter holds that up and says, you did this to Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul speaks in Acts 13.29, When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What was once a symbol of absolute shame and the curse of God has become for those saved by Jesus Christ. The thing that we look to and say, There is my salvation. Because he did it for me. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should have been us on the cross. That's what the law says. That's the curse right there. It should have been us. There is not a person in this room, myself included, who does not deserve that. That's the harsh reality of sin. 
But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus said, no, I'll do it for you because you can't do it for yourself. He took our curse and he gives us his righteousness. This is why this is such a big deal to Paul and why it must be a big deal to us. If we think we can in any way make ourselves righteous, what we are saying is that what the Son of God did in all its horror and shame and under the curse of the cross, what he did is, get this, not good enough. Thanks, Jesus, but that wasn't good enough. I'll take it from here. Or we'll say, well, maybe Jesus is just one among many ways of salvation. Jesus, that's great that you gave one option. I'm going to take some other option and I'll fix myself up. I've got it. When we do that, we are ignoring our shame and we are belittling the cross of Jesus and we are destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. Look at verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Remember what I said was the greatest blessing? The presence of God. What do we get through Jesus Christ? The Spirit of God. The blessing of having His presence with us at all times. Paul said in verse 9 that it is through faith we are blessed along with Abraham. The way of faith is the way that points to Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. This way of blessing is open to everyone. It doesn't matter what rules and laws you know. It doesn't matter how you were brought up. You can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the blessing is there, the very presence of God. One commentator suggested that the choice between faith and works is like standing out on a lake with one foot in one boat and the other foot in another boat. And those boats are beginning to drift apart, as they will. And at some point, you have to make a choice. Which boat am I going to stand in? Am I going to try to do it all myself? Am I going to trust in my own works? Or am I going to trust in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation? Relying on faith and relying on our own works cannot be kept together. So I ask you today, what are you relying on? Maybe for you today, this is the fork in your road. And you're seeing these two ways, maybe for the first time, clearly. Maybe you're looking back and you're saying, man, I'm on the wrong road. It is never too late to come to Jesus Christ and accept salvation through him. If you're trusting your own good works, trying to be a good person, I have some difficult news for you. Paul has some difficult news for you. You are under a curse. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ who took the curse for you, you can have faith that he has done everything necessary and possible to satisfy the law, to make you righteous before God, to take the curse for you, to bear your shame and your judgment. You stand righteous before God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. When you come to this fork in the road, the choice to trust your own efforts or to trust in Jesus Christ, don't, as Yogi Berra said, don't just take it as if it doesn't matter. Don't think whatever, no big deal. Look to Jesus. Look ahead to the cross 
He's taken that curse for you. You don't have to go down the other road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this book of Galatians is so eye-opening in so many ways. And, And whether we somehow have accepted that we need to fix ourselves up and make ourselves righteous and and we are challenged here that that is not the way of salvation, not the way of righteousness. Or or maybe we've accepted your son as our savior, but we still bear this guilt and shame thinking we've got to change ourselves. We've got to change the world around us. We are responsible to fix it. Both are such a lie. God, we need to trust you in the work that only you can do. What Christ did on the cross is powerful. It can change us. It changes others. It makes us righteous before God if we, through faith, believe and accept what he did that we could never do on our own. As your word says, Father, may we test our own hearts. May we ask ourselves, what is it I'm truly relying upon? And I pray, Father, whether for the first time or for the millionth time, each one of us can say, I am trusting in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen.